All right. Well, you can take your Bibles out and join me at this time as we go back to the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 25. While you're going there, I know that a number of you took us up on our challenge to purpose to read the Bible through and joining together in a two-year plan and doing so. And if you did that, then today was the day, if you've kept pace, in which you're finishing the book of Genesis. And uh, I have just had the best time talking with so many of you as the month has progressed about different things in there. And everything from the fall of man, God's creation, the flood, Lot. Now, there were some interesting conversations about that one. But uh, the faithfulness of God with Joseph and Isaac and Abraham, just so so many good things that we have sort of purposed and and discovered together. So as we continue on, I just want to encourage you to persevere. If you didn't start with us and you're thinking, wow, maybe I'd like to participate from this point forward, or, or maybe you just knew the church and you didn't even know about that, hey, come join us. We start Exodus in three days. Now, you said, Jack, you say, uh, wait a minute, you said today you finished Genesis and you're not going to start for three days? That's right. Our plan allows for catch-up days because we are a church of grace and mercy, and we all need it when we are reading our Bibles and trying to keep up with the plan. But if you have kept up, let me give you an encouragement. Use the next two days, maybe the first day, to look back on Genesis and what has God shown you. And then use the day after that to look ahead. Maybe get you one of those study Bibles and read a little bit about the book of Exodus that we're about to go into. Or you can go to a great resource would be on YouTube, uh, The Bible Project Exodus. Just type that in the search bar and you'll see the outline of the book kind of drawn out for you in a chart form. Makes it very easy to understand the big picture. So my challenge, keep going. We still got the Psalms that we're working through, but take another one of these passages or prepare yourself as we move ahead. All right, well, Matthew chapter 25. You know, we've spent several weeks now looking at prophecy. And one of the problems I have found in preaching prophecy is that there's a group of people that just love it. And then there's another group that are like, whatever. Uh, You know, how does knowing what happens way out there in the future make me, help me to be a better dad? How does it help me in my relationships right now? You know, what, what, it's, it's too much looking far ahead and not enough of what can I do in this moment. And that's my challenge to you, to stop and arrest that kind of thinking. And here's how I challenge you. Let's just say you got word that today at 5 o'clock, you're going to pass away. You're going to be with the Savior as of 5 o'clock this evening. I doubt very much the playoffs are high on your priority list today and what you're going to do between now and 5 o'clock. You're going to say, normally that's a big deal. I got a lot of other things that are far more important to me in this limited time frame. But then I could take the time frame and push it a little bit. What if the time frame is up five years? You knew you were going to pass away in five years. Well, you might still watch the playoffs tonight, right? But your motive might be different because, you know, I've only got five more sets of playoffs and five more Super Bowls. What's more important to me than the game is the relationships of the people I'm going to be around. And it'll transform the way that you'll see and study and watch and even enjoy that moment in life. And that's what prophecy is meant to do for you and I. Uh, It's the idea of we got to be people that are living with the end in mind. And Jesus enlightens us on this so that we will do exactly that. So when Jesus speaks about the future, 
And he talks about it with his disciples in particular. Um, we see that he's not merely talking to them. He's talking to all of his disciples. From that point on, everyone has something to pick up and to capture on this. Because he knows if we take him at his word, it's going to impact me today in this moment. And in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, we saw that Jesus has been speaking specifically about a time frame that we call the Great Tribulation. And I have it up here on the screen for you, sort of highlight it. But it is a time when the Jews in particular and anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ or becomes a follower of Jesus Christ after the church has been raptured, anybody in that time frame is going to go, undergo a pretty significant persecution. And that is putting it mildly. This is going to be intense. Anybody who doesn't align with Antichrist and his forces, he's going to come after them. And he's going to come after them hard. So we can say... Antichrist will go after God's chosen people, whether they're Jews or they become believers. Sometimes we'll call them tribulation saints because they become saints during the tribulation. And so in chapter 24, when Jesus began talking about this and, and describing it, he let us know not only about the people that are going to go through the tribulation in that time, but he let us know, people that are living in this time, who maybe. May not, may not be going through that time period. We're all meant to learn from it. We're all meant to examine it for the purposes of being ready. Now, just a couple of things about it, because I think it's just important to, to understand a framework. The first thing that's going to happen that kicks all this off is what we call the rapture of the church. This is when Jesus Christ takes those saints who have trusted and believed in him right now, uh, or, and in the coming days until this event happens, but people who have the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit on them, and he takes them up to be with him. And while they're receiving rewards from here on earth, that's when things get rough. They start three and a half years, not quite as rough, but in the latter three and a half years, it gets really hard. Now, remember what I said in the rapture, men and women who have the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit are taken up. That's a new phenomenon that only began in the age of the church. Happened on the day of Pentecost. How did you understand and know a Jew to be a true Jew prior to the Holy Spirit abiding on someone? You, you, you saw it. You, there was a heart change that happened, but you saw the evidences by how they lived. Did, did they purpose to abide by the law? Did they purpose to serve and to honor God? That's what, they, that's what they experienced, but they did not get to experience the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit. That's why in the Psalms, David would pray and he would say, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit would visit and leave, but you have a unique gift, you and I do, living in what we call the age of the church, where that is the seal of our redemption, the Spirit of God in us. Well, in this day, my understanding, so put an asterisk on that, my understanding is after the church has been raptured, the people that are going through the tribulation, it's going to be much like what you saw in Old Testament times. Men and women who come to an understanding of who God is and they follow him, but they don't necessarily get the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit. And Antichrist will hate them. And he will come after them. He'll come after them with everything he's got. And so the Jews in that time and the people who become uh, rescued in Christ will undergo an intense persecution. So in 25, Jesus, after telling his disciples this, kind of switches gears, right? We, we looked at that last week. Now he moves into these parables, these stories about the future for the purposes of helping his people to have a mindset. 
Knowing that these are the kinds of things that are going to happen, how do I live now and today? And that was the purpose of the parables. They're illustrations of a truth. Now, like I said before, we don't necessarily go through the tribulation because we will be taken up with Christ. So how does all this apply to us? Well, it's not that hard to figure out because Jesus gives warnings of when his return will happen. But of the days when the church is raptured, that one, there, there's no signs, there's no signals. It's just, boom, it happens. It is a total surprise. And so if the Jew and the tribulation saint is called to be ready for the return of Christ, how much more for those who have the Spirit of God in them who are awaiting that time where we will be taken up to be with him? The call is still the same. Be prepared. Have your heart ready. Keep your focus right. Live with the end in mind. So last week we saw in the story the parable of the ten virgins. And, you know, the big picture behind that was this call. Jesus is saying, you know the bridegroom's coming, so be prepared. Don't be caught unawares. Now, we can say this, even for our own time, while we might be surprised, that doesn't mean that I have to be unprepared. I can still be prepared. And so, ultimately, the parable of the ten virgins is going to be a story about faith. And then we had the parable of the talents. And on this one, it was teaching us that we got to be ready. And the things that God has given us, and in particular, the faith that we have, we need to invest it. We need to grow it. And we do that by obeying God. So there's this calculated risk of obedience that we grow our faith by. And um, ultimately, this is a story about faithfulness. If this is what God has given you, then take it and be faithful with it. But then we get to the third And I'll call the final parable here where he gives a lesson that covers both faith and faithfulness. And the story is called The Sheep and the Goats. So I'm going to read it, and I'm going to invite you, if you would, out of respect for the Word of God, to stand with me as we do so. If you have a Bible, follow along. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. It says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison 
and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Our Father in heaven, our prayer is that your word, that it would be the living word that makes a difference in our lives and changes us. Let me decrease, let your word by the power of your spirit increase and speak where I don't even know where to begin to address. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Verse 31, Jesus' parable begins with a procession of when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. So again, this is not the rapture. This is where Jesus returns with his previously raptured church. And the passage says this is when he comes and he sits on his throne. Now, a lot of us might go, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is going to sit on the throne then, where is he now? What's What's going on now? And the Bible's clear. He sits at the right hand of the Father. It's a position of prominence. But in this day, the Father will stand up, step aside, and Jesus will come in, and Jesus will be the one who will sit on the throne. And the purpose for sitting on that throne is the role he's going to play. He's going to judge the nations. Now, Matthew Matthew likes to speak about judgment a lot. Our culture does not like to talk about judgment, do they? Matthew's very clear on it, and that's the big part of what the Messiah is going to do in his second coming. It's not politically correct to say, but that is exactly what he's going to do. And some of you might struggle with that and go, wait a minute, Jack, I, I seem to recall that Jesus came to save people, and then it says, for the Son of Man did not come to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that is correct regarding his first coming but not regarding his second coming, because it's in his second coming that there is going to be a judgment. So we've left this period of the age of the church, we've left the time period we're talking about here when that opportunity happens and comes to us, and now we've moved into a different era. And his judgment is very binary, extremely binary. You are either a sheep, someone who's going to be at his right hand, or you're going to be a goat. And when I say a goat, I don't mean like goat Tom Brady, the greatest of all time. I mean more like field goal kicker for the Dallas Cowboys missing five of the last seven field goals. This is a different kind of goat. And that one will be on his left. And that is indicative of the position of power, a position of significance. And at this judgment, in both cases, it kind of seems like things are somewhat arbitrary, Right? I mean, they're placed in one category or the other, and so they're asking, wait a minute, why why am I on this side? Wait a minute, why am I on this side? They don't don't even know, and the reason is given. And unfortunately, a lot of people hear this, and they interpret it incorrectly because they, they do this, and they start thinking, wait a minute, it looks like you're judged on whether or not you were good or you weren't good. You know, that, that you, things you did, things you failed to do. That if you're very philanthropic, God likes that and you'll be saved. And if you're, you know, Scrooge, then that's not the case. But that isn't the case. In fact, look at verse 34 to see what Jesus says about his sheep. It begins, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. There's something that has happened in advance of what they've done. Prepared before the foundation of the world. God works in hearts. Ultimately, that is what saves. And thus the basis 
for anyone looking on and God looking on to make his declaration as to whether or not that work has been done in your heart, it ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, comes down to a matter of faith. Not ultimately what a person did, it's what they believed about Jesus. And what you believe about Jesus will then show itself in how you live. You can never flip those around. How I live earns my salvation, God loves me. No, that is a false teaching. It's as I trust God, he changes me, then I live, and the evidences then go out. Well, how are the evidences going to be in that day? Jesus says it's based on how you treat my people, my messengers, the ones who speak truth, who, who, who proclaim me to other people. That's how we're going to know. How did you deal with them? And this isn't hard for us to understand. In fact, if you remember, there's a story back in Acts chapter 9, which a fellow named Saul is going out and he's persecuting the church. And he's putting some in prison and some he's putting to death. And as he's going along a path, Jesus Christ appears to him and there's a statement that he makes. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Is that what he says? He says, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus' point the way you treat my people is indicative of how you feel and treat me. Very clear. And so it's going to be that way in this judgment in particular in the future. That those who believe upon God and reject Antichrist, they're going to show their colors based on how they stuck their neck out and identified themselves with the followers of God. And Antichrist will seek to come after them. He'll come after them hard. And Jesus says in that day that investing in your faith in me will be demonstrated by how you accept and how you receive his people. And so to those who won't, they're going to indicate and show they are not in alignment with God because they're against him through his people. And so in both judgments, both the sheep and the goats are surprised. And Jesus' exhortation, don't be surprised. Don't let that happen. Evaluate what it is that you're ultimately to respond to in faith. So again, the text is in no way renunciating the, the New Testament truth in particular that you are only saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That was the case for the Old Testament. I don't know if you realize that or not. You weren't saved in the Old Testament because you did sacrifices. You were saved because you trusted God. And because you trusted God and that he would take care of your sins, you obeyed him and had sacrifices. Can people do sacrifices and not trust him? Yes. Can people not trust him? Can people trust him and not do sacrifices? No. You see the order. They would have done that. It's the manifestation. In our day, it's we are saved. And then, yes, there are actions, there are works, there are things that we'll do that follow that, that are the evidence of our faith. And in that day in the future, again, I think it's going to be a whole lot like Old Testament times. You trust, we'll see it, and we'll know it based on how you live. It's the evidence. And the New Testament even addresses this. I think this is why James would write in 2.17 of his book, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. There should be something that is a manifestation of what you believe. Or I could summarize it this way. A work less faith is a worth less faith. You start with faith. Then from there, God works and we see the evidence of what's going on in here. And faith in this tribulation period will be very specific 
and how that gets played out. And in that day, ultimately, just as it is in every day, it really will come down to what do you think of Jesus and his people? And it shows that you're related and you're identifying with him. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, He who receives you, speaking to his disciples, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. There's an identification that goes when you're one united receiving believers in Jesus Christ. Third John, John writes, Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers, and they've testified to your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. If they're God's people, you identify with them, you walk with them, you help them. That's an evidence, not the only, but that is an evidence that you know him and are following him. And so acts of mercy that are shown to God's people are going to be those evidences of faith. And we have other biblical examples of this, right? Remember in the Old Testament, a woman named Rahab in Jericho? And she learns that the spies are in the town, and she's heard of the God of Israel, and she knew the God of Israel is mighty, and her king wanted to know if she's hiding spies, and what did she do? She, she got them out of there. She took care of them. Why? Faith. She identified with the people of God. She would take care of the people of God and see to it that they got to where they needed to be. And God rewarded her faith by rescuing her and her family too because of that faith. Or in the Old Testament, you all remember the midwives. Actually, you're going to read about them this week if you're doing the Bible reading with us. But the midwives who, when Pharaoh said, kill the Hebrew males that are being born, kill every one of them. And they wouldn't do it. They defied Pharaoh because they revered God. This is a perfect illustration of what we're talking about in that tribulation era. Who you identify with shows who you ultimately believe in. In contrast, there's another fellow in the Old Testament. His name's Abimelech. And when Saul came after the high priest, and he's talking with the priest and, uh, um, and the priest's men, and he's convinced that the priest is somehow defying him by aiding and helping David. So he turns to his men and he says, kill these guys. And his men go, we're not doing that. We don't kill God's priests. But Abimelech stood up and goes, I'll do it. I'll do it. And Abimelech showed who he identified with. I don't trust God. I trust power and immediate, uh, uh, yeah, immediate power in Saul. And he aligned himself in that case. And so ultimately here, the principle here about faith and faithfulness, it's timeless. We're looking at a specific way it plays out in the Old Testament, but it plays out for all of us for all time. James 2.22 says of Abraham of old that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the point goes back to, again, you always will ultimately live out what you really believe. You'll value what it is that God values. You will seek to preserve what he wants preserved. His word, his truth, his promises, his people, his mission. That's what you'll align with. You will show your colors. You will identify. Just like you're going to see this afternoon if you watch sports, the people that identify with the team will wear the colors. They'll wear the jersey. They'll wear the number to say, this is who I side with. And God says, that's how your faith 
shows its colors by how you identify with me. And it's made evident by your faithfulness. Now, is that scary? Everybody say, yeah. Yes, it is. When we're faced with this, you know, this is a big test of our faith. I think this is why it's John 16, 33, such a comfort to us. When Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you uh, so that in me you may have peace. But the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage for I have overcome the world. Folks, this is a great verse for us to be memorizing. Because as we think through, what are the implications if I stand up for what is true? Whether in this age or the age to come, what are the implications? You stand on the fact that God says, ultimately, I've overcome. And when you align with me, you've aligned with the one who is victorious. So Jesus is reminding his disciples of the truth that is going to happen in that day. But again, this is timeless. We want to identify with our king. And if he hasn't yet come back to reign on the earth, all the more reason to identify with him and be in alignment with where he would have us to go. So I can summarize it this way. What is it that God does in the work in our life and our day? Let me break it down this way. We hold, ultimately, that Jesus gave his life for you. This is called salvation. When you have placed your faith and trust that this is what Jesus has done. He died in your place for your sins, take the penalty, remove them, and now we are saved from the wrath of God. But then there's the next step. He does it so that he can give his life to you. And now we walk in newness of life. We say that at every baptism. Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. This is meant to change us and how we live. We live to allow the living Christ and his spirit to work in and through us. But then it goes on to say so that he can live his life through you. Then comes the service. Service that's in alignment with his purposes and his causes. And you can't adequately do the third unless the first two have happened. Can people do good deeds and good works and not do trust Christ? Happens all the time, right? We're made in the image of God. And so everybody has an aspect of things that they can do that we looking on would say, well, that's good. But here's what you can never do unless you've gone through the first two steps. You can never do it to the glory of God. It's going to be for your glory. It's going to be for your purposes. It's going to be for your benefit, ultimately, at its, at its core. And Jesus says, no, this is not how we're going to work. I'll come, redeem, transform, work through, and go from there. So, again, timeless truth. We're called to show our colors, particularly when risk is involved, and to show others the evidence of who it is that we believe in and who we trust in. So, let me kind of wrap this up and sort of do what Jesus did, and sort of an explanation to people, and do that with us. And here's what I mean. What if, in our day... We pass away before the age of the church is ended. We stand before God. And we could ask this question, Lord, what evidences are there that I'm even saved? And this is a good question for us. What are the evidences that I am saved and I have believed? And there's a lot of things that he could say. He could, he could look at us and say this, you know, I was canceled because I spoke the truth of the gospel and I was berated and abused and manipulated and hurt but you came beside me and you walked with me 
and you encouraged me and built me up when social media was ripping me down. You stood by me and you encouraged me. Or you might say this, I was an innocent child in a mother's womb and you spoke up for me and you assisted that really scared mother who didn't know what she was going to do. And you came alongside in order to give me a life that is the evidence of your faith. It doesn't earn from God. Evidence. Or you might say this, I grew up in the church and boy, I messed up in life really pretty bad. And rather than rub my nose in the mess that I made, you extended forgiveness and mercy and you walked with me through this and helped me to see myself in the light of God's cross and his mercy and forgiveness and love. And your faith was made evident. I was a missionary of the gospel, and you helped fund me because you saw the same souls that I did that were not going to be spending an eternity with God. And so you knew you could partner with me. And as a result, your faith was made evident. I'd been abused by people in this world. And rather than seeing me as being defined by my hurt, you helped me instead to see myself defined as the one Jesus loves. And you came alongside and you ministered to me and you blessed me and you put your faith on display as you let God work through you. I was a new convert to the faith, but I was abandoned, left without anyone to help really guide me on the path to what it means to be a follower of Christ and really know what it is to be your child. You came alongside, you discipled me. You invested of your time and your effort and your energy, and you helped me to see more of God in ways that I never would have discovered any other way apart from that. And then you let me in on your life as well. And the evidence of your faith was made manifest. I was lost, buried in the depths of my sin as you spoke the truth to me about Jesus Christ and of his love for me and his sacrifice and of a new life that I could have. And you were patient with me as I wrestled through this and, and, and tried to combat this and figure it all out until I came to faith. And your faith became evident. These are statements, I don't know, maybe one day these are the kinds of things that Jesus will say about us. It's part of our reward when we hear in him, when he commends his own for people who had a heart of faithfulness, built in faith. And we didn't get distracted. We didn't allow lesser things to lower our gaze. But this is not what Jesus is going to say to you. Come now, you who, uh, uh, come now and inherit unto you all that I have, because you did so much. And my goodness, you just worked so hard for me. No, that's not it. He'll say, instead, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That will be the basis. And I gave my life so that I could give new life to you to then use you as a vessel by which I might work through you by the evidence of your faith. You took the very short time that I gave you here in this life, and you were faithful while you waited for me. And the challenge for all of us, this is not meant to, be, to put anybody on a guilt trip, but the word of God is meant to change us, amen? So the question we've got to ask ourselves, what evidences are there 
for my faith? What are they? And if you don't know them, then ask God to work in you that those evidences might be made known. Such that when it comes your turn, the best word you hear is Jesus looking you in the eyes and saying, well done.